0: You okay? Good? Thanks, Catherine, for that, and for all that you've done for years to be a voice for the voiceless. And as we uh, talk about poverty today, special welcome to someone who is here from Feeding America, one of their directors who just recently moved to DC, my very own daughter. So <laughs> Love you, Holly. And uh, you may be wondering why I'm not wearing a tie with my suit. Well, it's this. Because <laughs> Holly's husband is a videographer for the Nats and just flew in last night from Houston. So this is his gift. And so let's hear it up for the Washington Nationals, right? What <laughs> do they do? And as our country faces unprecedented challenges, it's a gift to me that you would take out time from your busyness on the hill and be here today to talk about this subject. And in return I'd like to offer you a gift. One of hope. Hope that for the first time, for millions of people, all created in God's image, all created equal, with immeasurable worth, though they have been trapped on this generational treadmill of extreme poverty and sheer survival. And it's my desire that your newfound hope will be actionable and that you will join this revolution that we're about, our generations defining accomplishment, to end extreme poverty in the world. We all know that some situations are permanent, but there are others that we just will never change and then they do all the stars line up just right and the seemingly impossible becomes a reality a man walks on the moon the Berlin wall falls electric cars drive themselves a team that after 50 games had a 1.5 percent chance of winning the world <laughs> and today we're going to look at another impossibility, by taking a journey with the poor. First, a little of my own journey. I was raised in, as Catherine said, under apartheid in South Africa, where 25% of the population made all the rules, owned all the land, and virtually every member of that white minority felt that the system was just and that it was there to stay. It was permanent. And I was indoctrinated from infancy by my all-white friends, my school teachers, later the media, even my own pastor. And though my parents would have zero tolerance for injustice and for any kind of uh, bigotry, as missionaries, their focus was on eternal life, what happens after you die. And extreme poverty for the masses was accepted as the norm. That situation seemed so permanent. And thankfully, apartheid's been dismantled. And there is this growing revolution of people who are committed to ending extreme poverty during our lifetime. And I know that seems like a big, hairy, audacious goal. And it is. But today's poverty can be yesterday's Berlin Wall. And this is not just my own wishful thinking. This bold statement made by Bill and Melinda Gates not too long ago, the lives of people in poor countries will improve faster in the next 15 years than at any other time in history. And their lives will improve more than anyone else's. And there are many indicators that are showing that we are, in fact, winning this war on poverty. There's a sheet there that lists a dozen of them or so. Take it on your way out. But let me just give you a few. Infant mortality. Since 1990, children dying from the age of five has dropped by 52%. We all know the direct correlation between education and poverty and the share of children enrolled in primary school has increased from less than 50% in 1950 to 90% today. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, over the last decade alone, arguably the most challenging region of the world, school enrollment has increased from 58 to 76% in 10 years. Another impact on poverty is population. And today, women in India have an average of 2.6 children, down from 5.5 in 1970. Their birth rate has been cutting half in one generation. And these are all indicators of tremendous progress. So, 50 years ago, when the world's population was about three and a half billion people, half of them were living in extreme poverty. 1.7 billion people today. Population is double that, 7.5 billion people, and yet less than 750 million are living on less than $2 a day. One billion people have been freed from this generational treadmill of extreme poverty. And for the first time in the world's history, extreme poverty is under 10% of the population. And here's what that journey looks like. For moving from living on under $2 a day to about $5 a day, it means being able to cook over a simple stove rather than an open fire. Or riding a bicycle, rather than depending on where you can go by how far you can walk, almost always bare feet. It means sleeping on a simple mattress rather than on a mat on the ground. It means pure drinking water. Having a toilet rather than an open field. It often means sending your children to school on a full stomach where they can really learn. And it most certainly means some kind of livelihood. I took this shot, when I was in India not too long ago, of this squattered village living in these lean-tos that you see here on the only open land that they could find, this narrow median strip between the lanes of a four-lane highway. And to watching a mother raise her child with traffic whipping by on either side of it. it redefined for me survival. When I was in India 10 years ago, I took these pictures. Bicycles were everywhere, thousands of them, like bees on a honeycomb. This is when I was there a few years ago, just two years ago. Hardly any bicycles. Almost everybody riding scooters. Going to work, shopping, creating capital, or taking their kids to school. On the, like this family of four on a little scooter. Here's the scene that I took standing on the corner. And this 10 years ago, we did a to bicycles, but hardly a bicycle. Now, this is tremendous progress. <laughs> Mind you, the air pollution is enough to make your eyes burn and your, your, your throat raw. But if the last decade is any indication of the next, those pollution motorbikes will be cars, and many of them electric. And we've been conditioned to think that extreme poverty will always be here because we keep focusing on how far we have yet to go, rather than how much has really been accomplished in one generation. When I joined Opportunity International 30 years ago, it was estimated that 40,000 people were dying every day from hunger and related illness. Today, it's half that. Before we go to bed tonight, 20,000 people will die from hunger. That's tremendous progress. But it's still 20,000 too many. Because tomorrow, another 20,000 people are gonna die from hunger and the next day, and the next. And the real tragedy is that for the vast majority of these people, there is no shortage of food. They simply don't have the money to buy the nutritious food that's readily available. And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, I would suggest to you, is not just. That level of poverty should not be imaginable today. About 3,000 years ago, the prophet Micah asked a very simple question about life. And he answered it with an equally profound statement. What does the Lord require of you, O man, O person, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? All of life is wrapped up in this one simple sentence, and everything begins with doing justice. But how do we do justice today when the playing field is so uneven, when the wealth of the world's three richest individuals equals the assets of the poorest 48 nations combined? Or when the richest 85 people own more than the poorest half of all of humanity? And one lesson I took from apartheid is that justice is not just avoiding certain behavior, or even certain attitudes. Justice requires action. So how do we do justice today and move people from an open-fire cooking on a highway to a simple stove, or from bare feet to a bicycle and then to motorcycles? And to end extreme poverty, I think, begins first and foremost with believing that it can be done. Because if we don't, we'll never try. And part of that believing is to look back and to remember and celebrate how far we have really come in one generation. When Opportunity International started making loans in 1971, they were individual loans exclusively to men, about $5,000. 20 years later, they were almost all in trust groups of about 30 people, Primarily to women, average loan, about 200 bucks. Later we went on to savings, and then on to providing insurance for the poor. And for almost 50 years now, Opportunity's Hallmark has been innovating by listening to the needs expressed by the poor. And today, 85% of our loans go to women. They select about 30 of their friends to form this little trust group, And they have no collateral, so they're cross-guaranteeing one another's loans. And if one of them defaults this week, the others chip in, knowing that at the end of the six months, when the next loan is, they're eligible. Nobody gets it unless everybody is current with their debt. And so there's this huge peer support. It's not just peer pressure, it's peer support to make sure that they all stay current. And because of that... 97% of our loans are recycled. This is what a trust group looks like. They just sit on the floor, they get together every week, pay back their loans, get business training so that their businesses are profitable, and they get support from one another. And for those of you who have this interest in numbers, this is what it looks like. Last year, we loaned out $2 billion, 97% repayment rate, Average loan for the first time was about $270. That's a lot of loans. And at that pace, we're impacting somebody about every five seconds. And For those of you not so interested in the metrics, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. And we'll take five minutes. Come with me to Zimbabwe. I'd like to tell you about Teresa. So Teresa was forced to drop out of grade school to help her mother make and sell rooms. The choice between survival and education is really not a choice. As many teenagers, girls in Africa, when she became a teenager, she also became a mother. Shortly after that, she left her farm community to follow her husband into the capital and shortly after they arrived, he deserted her and their four children, leaving her more destitute than ever. And so this woman, determined to provide the education for her kids that she never received, she worked for three families as a domestic maid for several years, 12 to 14 hours every day, before she'd go home to her own children who needed her. Well, she eventually married again. And she had a fifth child. And it was this that was the impetus for her to start a little business out of her home. And so that's when she met opportunity. And she borrowed a little bit of money to buy some vegetables. And she sold these in front of her house. And she called this a supermarket. (laughs) But it wasn't. This is Teresa today. But this supermarket, as you can see, was not. I saw that. I took And yet, with the profits of that little store, she opened up another supermarket across town and she hired somebody to manage that store. And when that loan was paid off, she came back to us and she borrowed some more money, this time to buy some firewood. And she hired somebody to bring in a pickup load of logs and dump them in front of her house and hired somebody to cut them up and stack them and sell them because everybody in her community was dependent upon the wood-burning stove to cook their food and boil their drinking water. Well, after that firewood loan was paid off, she borrowed some money to buy this hair dryer. And she turned one of the bedrooms in her tiny little house into a beauty salon during the daytime. And she hired one of the women in the community to come in and cut hair. And and with the profits of that, she bought a second chair and hired a second woman. And then a third. When that loan was paid off, she bought a little money, borrowed a little money from us to build this little shed on the side of her house, and she turned it into a game room for all the kids in the neighborhood. And she bought this used football table, some outdated arcade games, and the kids would come in there, and pay her, and with that payment, she would pay us back our loan. So if this that wasn't enough, this entrepreneur with a third-grade education, she then borrowed money to buy a freezer. And every evening, she would fill little baggies with different flavored fruit juice and she'd melt it over a candle and she'd put it in the freezer and the next day she'd sell it to all these children for a few pennies as popsicles on their way home from, from home. school. I'd like to read just a couple paragraphs from her story out of my book. There are complimentary copies over there on your way out, just please just help yourself. Now in her 80s, Teresa's workday begins at 4 in the morning with the bookkeeping for her four businesses. At 7, she starts her rounds, inspecting the different operations. She still runs the firewood stand in the supermarkets. She closed the beauty salon when her husband, who has since died, became bedridden. And recently, she added another business. She is the distributor for Coca-Cola in her neighborhood. She sells soda by the case to others who then sell bottles on the street or in their supermarkets. And the last I heard, she was applying for a loan to buy an old truck, one that would double as a delivery vehicle for her, her wholesale soda business, as well as function as a hearse. She sold the video games to make room for a funeral business, where she sells caskets. With AIDS devastating her nation, and life expectancy down in the 30s at that time, the demand for her latest enterprise was on the rise. So I'm in awe of this woman, who had to drop out of grade school to make and sell brooms, and has now put not only this daughter, but several of her other kids through university. And I wrote on poverty to shine a spotlight on these amazing people who, though monetarily are impoverished, they are rich where I'm bankrupt. And they have so much to teach me about life. So every chapter is a different life lesson that I am learning from them. And every lesson is illustrated by the stories of these remarkable people that I've had a chance to meet. And after visiting 50 countries or so, I've concluded that these people are poor simply because of where they were born. They're poor because of latitude and longitude, not because of laziness or any lack of ability. And I'm grateful for the affluent community that I live in and where Holly was raised. And I don't have to live with guilt knowing that it wasn't my choice where I was born. And the poor, so their choice—they were born either, or where they were destined to live. And as you watch this scene unfold, come to that these people they didn't choose whether they live or work. These are squatters. They're living and working in these shelters that you see, scrapping to survive at the base of the world's poverty ladder. And this narrow strip of land is the only remaining place they could find to build their homes and conduct their businesses and raise their family. And once I recognize my relative affluence and confess my internal poverty, I can choose to live as a responsible member of our global village. This choice is mine. I can choose to follow the teachings of Jesus and carry on his mission. Bring hope and good news to the poor and to free the oppressed, as we're told he does in Luke chapter 4. Ending extreme poverty is a high calling and it's doable, it's an attainable goal. So, as we close, I'd like to offer you four practical steps that you can take. First, become an advocate here on the Hill for global poverty. Opportunity is a member of two organizations. If you'd like to meet either one of them, there's a card there of my colleague, Mark Castellino, who is our staffer here in DC for advocacy, and he'd be happy to meet with you and your boss and talk about some of the issues that we're here in. The two organizations that we're aligned with are the Alliance to End Hunger, which supports legislation that helps these issues, and it supports the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals to end extreme poverty by 2030. And the other is the US Global Leadership Coalition. And together last year, we saw the passage of the Global Food Security Reauthorization Act when leaders reached out across the aisle and by unanimous consent signed a bill to combat hunger and poverty. And secondly, please do all you can to protect international affairs budget. This is a line budget that's not only right for us as an affluent country to do, but it is also for our own safety long-term. When you combine the extreme hopelessness and poverty along with the, today's awareness of how we live, this is a petri dish for violence. And as it stands, only 1% of our budget goes to international affairs, of which USAID is just a small subset. And granted, much of what USAID has given to governments over the years has been abused, and very little has trickled down to those who really need it and for whom it was given. But that's why today USAID is giving through NGOs, non-government organizations like ours, because we provide them the accountability that they need and you as a tax dollar deserve And over our history, Opportunity International has received from USAID about $95 million, which is a huge bang for their buck, because not only is it multiplied, since they have a requirement that every dollar is matched by the private sector, because their grants to us go out as loans and keep getting recycled, it just keeps growing. So last year, that investment, we created, provided loans to. 2 billion people, which is a huge return on their investment. And then in addition to what you can do on the Hill, here's what I would recommend you do in your own personal life. I wrote on poverty because I want people to understand how the poor live and why. This is just one book, but please become familiar with the poverty and what our brothers and sisters are enduring when they're surviving on less than $2 a day. And if you want to better understand it, there's a whole lot of other organizations. In the last eight pages of my book, I dedicate to eight different ministries for this very reason. This is not about opportunity. It's not about microfinance. We're not gonna alone solve poverty. Living Water provides pure drinking water by drilling wells around the developing world. Habitat for Humanity provides housing. International justice mission, se- fight sex trafficking, and World Relief, and <clears throat> resettle refugees. And if you guess what the portion of America's volunteer giving to international affairs is, what would you think it be? Twenty-five percent, ten percent, five percent. Unfortunately, it's the latter. Of the $430 billion given by people like you and me voluntarily, it's not our tax dollars, it's our voluntary charitable contributions, based on the tax IRS returns, 5% of that $430 billion left our country, this affluent country of the United States. doesn't mean we shouldn't support our own university and our churches. What it means is we want to diversify our charitable giving to include the least of these living on less than $2 a day. And my concluding call to you is to commit yourself to a life of following the example of Jesus and His solidarity with the poor. You cannot miss it as you read the Gospels. And today, the proxy for Jesus, whom we seek to love and serve, live on $2 a day outside of our country most of them. And we must change the world for them, and we can. Extreme poverty is not permanent. Today, we inhabit a world with a dismantled apartheid, demolished Berlin Wall, footprints on the moon, autonomous vehicles, and now help build a world without extreme poverty where your grandkids will learn about it by visiting poverty museums and where you and I choose to live more simply so others can simply live so that every member of our global community can live with dignity and hope on their behalf thank you very much